0: Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilcha is the laws of Sanhedrin, the courts, the Haonishin HaMasurim Lohem, and the punishments that they are in charge of. And today we study chapter 14. And chapter 14 is about the various forms of death penalty. This is actually a chapter in the Mishnah and Talmud in Sanhedrin. The courts were given four types of death penalty. That is the extent of the types of death penalty administered by the courts. And we know that uh, in the Western world to this day, they struggle with death penalty. What is the most effective form of death penalty? And they go from one thing to the other, and there's complications, and so on and so forth. The Torah has clarity as it relates to death penalty. Arba Mises, there are four forms of death penalties. Nimsru, which were handed over. lebesdin to a court. And they are, in order of severity, skila, stoning. And we're going to learn the detailed applications of these death penalties a little bit later. But these are the categories, stoning, Just uh, briefly, the person is pushed off a cliff and then stones are thrown upon the person but usually the person is dead before the stones hit him. Osreifah and burning. And burning, as we will learn later, is where they pour hot lead down the person's throat. Vahariga besayif and then decapitation with a sword and that is as the commentaries explain as kings would kill people the and choking which was with a towel or a cloth putting it around the person's neck and pulling either way and we will define in more detail these death penalties but that is the extent of the death penalty allowed and, and prescribed by Torah under certain circumstances, skila for the first two, stoning and burning mifredoshin bateira are specified in the Torah. and we learned from the very mouth of Moshe Rabbeinu, shekol misah Stam. Whenever the Torah says the word death, what does it refer to? Hichenek it is choking so that whenever there's an undefined death penalty prescribed, it is the choking, chenek. Whenever there is a death penalty administered for murder, it is always by sword, that's decapitation. So also, in general terms, in the law, which involves an entire city which has gone astray in idol worship, which many commentaries say never happened. Misos on Bisa'if, the prescribed death penalty for that city as well, is by sword. Beys, too, call Misa every one of these four death penalties, mitzvahs asehi, it is a positive commandment given by Hashem and Torah. Given to who? Libet din to the court. Laregba to make sure the person who is found guilty in judgment is killed by it, whoever has been found liable by the system of the court. That is when the courts kill. What about when the king kills? As we have learned in the past and we will learn in great detail, in addition to capital punishment by the courts, a king had the right to kill anyone he desired to as long as it was with the system of the government that he sets up, that's outside the Betian. That's called the rule of kings. This is the rule of Jewish law. That's the rule of kings. When a king kills, it's only with the sword. Like uh, they say in all the Purim plays, off with his head. Gimel Mrs Bezn. Whenever someone is liable for death penalty, has been sentenced to death. Shelehe Misu Ese Bezn, where the court decided for whatever reason not to kill him. Bitlu they did not fulfill, they nullified mitzvah ase, a positive commandment. However, Vilayovru they did not transgress on mitzvah, a negative commandment with the exception of sorcery, min ha a sorcerer, where the Torah says, mechashepa lo-sechaya, you shall not allow a sorcerer to live, and by allowing him to live, it's a violation of her or him, it's a violation of a negative commandment as well. Avru al-mitzvah so they transgressed the negative commandment, shenem mechashepa lo-sechaya, a sorcerer shall not be allowed to live. Dalid, skila, min In the order of the death penalties, skila is more severe than shreifa. Skila is the stoning, Srefa is the burning. Usreifa and the burning, hamura is more severe, min than the sword. The hasayif and the sword, hamura is more severe, min from choking. And in general, when we enumerate the four different types of death, of death penalties, As a rule, we always enumerate them in order of severity. So you ask any yeshiva bocha, any yeshiva boy, any Torah student, what are the four death penalties? He'll tell you, which is in order of severity. What if somebody was found culpable with two death penalties? He was condemned to die twice with two different death penalties because of two different transgressions. You can't kill a guy twice. So he's always given the more severe one. Whether he transgressed two transgressions, one after the other, or one transgression, which has two death penalties associated with it, he is given the more severe death penalty. Even if... The judgment was completed for the more lenient death penalty, and then he transgressed the more severe one, and his case was brought to a close, he's still given the more severe. Now, is this for only men or men and women? He says, both man and a woman, are judged and are given the four different types of death penalty as suits the transgressions which they committed. Now we come into some interesting laws. Because we can never administrate a death penalty unless we are certain 100% that we got the right guy. So when there is someone who was condemned to death and that someone became mixed with another person who was condemned to death with another form of death penalty. So people who were supposed to be stoned got mixed with people who were supposed to be burned, got mixed with people who were supposed to be choked, so on and so forth. So what happens now? We're not sure which death penalty to administer, yet they all were sentenced to death. We take the common denominator, and that is the most lenient one. Because the most lenient one certainly would apply to all of them or, or something more severe. So we're safe by administering the, the most lenient one. Now he says, Zion, the plot thickens. What if somebody was found culpable, liable in judgment, and given death penalty? Where he got mixed in with the population in general. So nobody knows who he is. You know, he. he he broke away from his captors and he's walking down the street to Manhattan. Go find somebody in Manhattan. We have no idea which, which we know he's one of these 8,000 people, but we don't know which one. Or one of six people. Or the opposite or a different scenario. Someone's judgment has not yet been pronounced. And this person got mixed in with a person or people whose judgment was not yet pronounced, and we're not sure who he is. So what's the problem? Why don't you just pronounce judgment on the group? And you mean that individual. Because the other person, his judgment is final. The problem is that there's a law requiring that we know who the defendant is. The defendant has to be present, and we have to address him. So if we're not sure who the defendant is, we can't pronounce death penalty. They're all exempt. This is called getting away with a technicality. Because we only conclude the sentence and pass sentence upon someone if he's there and if he's present and we can identify him. What about a runaway? If somebody fought for his life, he fought the executioner, and the court could not bind him in order to properly put him to death with the form of death penalty, which is culpable. So what do you do? He's fighting for his life, and they can't tie him down. But they can kill him, but not in the prescribed manner. say The witnesses may kill him. But ...in any form of death that they can, because he's obviously not cooperating. Being that the penalty was finalized, so the, the witnesses do their best, and if it doesn't go, then they can use any option they can. As a rule we learned and we will learn, that it is the witnesses themselves who have to administer the death penalty. No one else may kill him first. As long as the witness is able to be the executioner. If, from the time of the sentencing of the death penalty until the time of the execution, the witnesses lost their hand, they don't have a hand, their hand was amputated, or what have you, then this person again gets away with a technicality. Because the witness can't execute. But if to begin with the witness had amputated limbs, someone else could execute. Because we learned earlier that if the witness can't execute, then someone else may do it. When does this apply? With all the other situations which brought about a death penalty as long as the transgression was not murder. We're talking about many, many types of transgressions like idolatry or what. There are many transgressions which could lead to a death penalty, but murder is different. But a murderer, who has been sentenced to death, we pursue him with any weapon, so we have to kill him because murderers bring about a tremendous uh, impurity within the entire community, decadence, and so on and so forth. We have to cleanse the country of murder, says the Torah. When someone is murdered, when someone is put to death, rather, by the court, Where are they buried? Are they permitted to be buried in their grave, in their family plot? The answer is no. And here there's, in general, a question. Can you bury a wicked person next to a righteous person? The answer is absolutely not. Because who is buried where is important. People are meticulous as to where their loved ones are buried. And is the neighborhood of burial, is it made up of God-fearing people? Therefore, this guy is certainly not God-fearing, because he was put to death for some type of serious transgression. And and They are not permitted to be buried in their family plots amongst other fellow Jews. Where are they buried then? There are two ready Burial areas for people who are sentenced to death. Echad, the more severe one, is lanaskolim v'lanisrafim for the first two categories which are more severe and they are stoned and burning. Ve'echad, and the second, l'neherogim for those who are killed by the sword and choked. V'dov'a This is a tradition from the oral law. Nesak however, once the corpse decomposes, Commentaries say that when the corpse decomposes, it's a sign that the soul has received atonement. As they gather the bones. And they're buried, buried in the family plot so they can actually transfer the bones to the family plot at that point in time. And we do permit the family to get a coffin and a shroud, and that's not a sign of disrespect to the death penalty. Now comes a very important law in the general terms of death penalty. No court should rush through the process of a death penalty trial, of a capital trial. in the courts, must be extremely patient, slow, in capital cases, and to wait, they should never rush. They should never say, you know what, let's get this one done before lunch. You're dealing with a life. bezin Shahargu unless there's a great lunch, that's something else. The bezin again, the Rambam points out there are various versions of this teaching. The Rambam quotes, any court that killed a man more often than once in seven years, there's another version, once in 70 years, chablonim are considered a savage court, a murderous court. Nevertheless, the court can't say, wait, we have to wait another two years, once in seven years, no. If circumstances demands that a death penalty be imposed day after day, they do it. This statement of once in seven years is an average statement. But we never pass judgment on two death penalties in one day. We don't do two cases in one day. One today and one mañana. Unless both of them committed the same transgression and have the same death penalty, for example, a case where there is what we call biblical adultery, and remember, we learned earlier that we can never impose a death penalty unless two witnesses come and say, hey, this is forbidden by Torah law, don't do it. And the people say, we know and we don't care. That's rare. But when you have an adulterer and an adulteress who committed their transgression together, takes two to the tango, in this case, the case could be judged in the same day because it's the same act. Now we come to another point. We learned earlier same transgression, same death penalty. Well, what if the man who committed the adultery committed the adultery with a woman who was the daughter of a Kohen who, again, was a betrothed or married woman? being that the Torah prescribes his death penalty is one form, chenek, and hers is burning, as it says in the Chumash, as that's the quote of the verse. So he gets a different penalty, a different death penalty than she does because of a decree of the Torah. In this case, they're both not killed on the same day, because there are two different death penalties, even though they are the same act. is the whole idea of the bed of the Sanhedrin. Judging capital cases are only when the Beis Hamigdash stood. that's when the great court of 71 is in the chamber of Yun stone in the Beis Hamigdash. There was a special area where the Sanhedrin met, as the verse says, "B'zokein Mamrei," with a rebellious elder, the vilti Shmoa el Hakohen, refusing to hear the Cohen. What does it mean, Kohen? He's not listening to the to the Sanhedrin, not the Cohen. That only when the Cohen is functioning, meaning when sacrifices are brought on the altar, there could be capital cases in the chamber of yun stone where the Sanhedrin met. only when the Sanhedrin is in its appropriate place. So when the Sanhedrin was exiled and is no longer in its appropriate place, there cannot be death penalties imposed. in the very beginning. when the Holy Temple was first constructed by King Solomon, the great Sanhedrin would sit Belishka sagozis in the yun Chamber, so biazas Israel, which was in the courtyard of the Israelites, actually, it says that part of it was in the holy and part of it was in the mundane. Bahamokem in the place where they sat, Khil, who was mundane, not the sanctity of the Beis Hamigdash. Shein b'azora because courtyard proper can only be used, El Lamache Beis david for the kings descending from the Davidic dynasty. However, as time went on and the troubles began, when the moral character of the people declined, Golu, the sanhedrin was exiled, Mimokim lemokim from place to place. And we're told ma is Golu. there are actually 10 different places where the courts moved to, the safe one in the end. The Sanhedrin ended up in Tveria in Tiberias. Shom, and from the time the Sanhedrin met in Tiberias, there was never a full 71 member Sanhedrin until this day, says the Rambam. The Kabolahi, we have a tradition, that when the Sanhedrin will return, which is obviously when Mashiach comes, it will return first to Tiberias. And it's interesting, commentaries say, that it's interesting that who is buried in Tiberias? The Rambam. So the Rambam is talking about when Mashiach comes, we know that the great tzaddikim will arise right away. Where? In Tiberias. It's all about location, location, location. From Tiberias, where the first Sanhedrin will take place. When Mashiach comes, they're then going to move back to the Besanigdash area, which, which is a fascinating teaching. There's an interesting note here where the Radbaz writes that our sages prophesied that Mashiach will be revealed in the Galilee. He will then be hidden for a time, and then appear in Jerusalem. Perhaps before he will become hidden, the Prophet Eliyahu, who will accompany him, will grant smicha to seventy elders, and they will reconvene the Sanhedrin in Tiberias. Okay, next. Yud thirteen of fourteen. Aboyim shana kedem the Rambam tells us that historically, 40 years before the destruction of the Second Holy Temple, death penalty law ceased within the Jewish people. Even though there was a beis Amigdash, and we said as long as the beis Amigdash is there and it's functioning, the death penalty laws can be imposed. Why? Because the Sanhedrin were exiled before the beis Amigdash shut down. They were not in their regular spot in the Holy Temple. When capital cases are tried in Israel, capital cases could be tried in the diaspora as well, provided that, as we learned repeatedly earlier, as long as the judges are ordained by a court of Israel. As long as it's ordained by an Israeli court, could exercise judicial authority in the diaspora as well. End of chapter 14.